Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello and welcome to Amicus, a new podcast from Slate about the law and the nine justices who interpret it for the rest of us in the United States. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent, and on this inaugural episode of Amicus, we're going to talk about the court's surprising, or maybe not so very surprising, refusal to take up the gay marriage cases this week. Then we'll talk about a case just argued at the Supreme Court this week that asks, how long can a Muslim prisoner's beard be if he is incarcerated and still feels his religion does not let him shave it? We'll talk to Douglas Laycock, one of the lawyers who argued that case this week at the high court. Finally, as this first week of the court's new term comes to an end, we'll look ahead to what cases are most likely to be blockbusters, maybe blockbusters, and thermonuclear blockbusters this term. And joining me, and it's an honor and a privilege for this first episode of Amicus, is Tom Goldstein, publisher of SCOTUS Blog, the indispensable resource for court watchers, who is himself also an experienced Supreme Court practitioner and really a professional court watcher. So thank you for being here, Tom, and welcome. Ha ha. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just get to it and talk Mm. about what everybody is wondering about, which is same-sex marriage. What happened or didn't happen on Monday, and what should we think about it? And I got to tell you, I have spent the last couple of days speculating, 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 and knowing nothing. What do you think? Everybody get it wrong until now everyone claims, oh, well, I actually knew they weren't going to hear the cases. But... It was kind of astonishing when both the advocates for same-sex marriage and the states all said, look, you gotta, you got to settle this. you got to figure it out. Everybody agrees it's a humongous deal. It matters tremendously to the country. It matters enormously to a huge number of couples. We have a potential train wreck if they were to allow the marriages to go forward and then in a few years come along and say, oh, you know, our bad. Actually, there isn't this right. So it was all teed up. Plus, plus, most importantly, let's be honest, that court observers were just super psyched. Uh, about how interesting and exciting a term it would be, and now we're really bummed. (laughs) Are we permanently bummed, or are we just kind of staying our excitement? (laughs) I think it's we're temporarily disabled bummed uh, (laughs) in the sense that I can't imagine that the history books will say the Supreme Court never decided this question. It's just wildly implausible. They believe that they're the court with the big boy pants, that they are the ones who have to decide the serious questions. What they've done is taken a pause uh, and allowed the country to move forward. Now, they may have done that for different reasons. They're nine very different people. But someday, and probably someday soon, they're going to have to step in. So 
right now, while we regard this past week as absolutely historic, the actual history books will tell a different story for when the court actually issues an actual decision on the issue. So so you're taping from Vegas, Tom. Why don't mm. you step up and spin the big, big wheel and tell me <laughs> what is your thought? I mean, what what was happening back there? You know, I've heard so many fantastic delusional conspiracy theories about, you know, the liberals were afraid that Anthony Kennedy, the famous swing vote, uh, wasn't going to go far enough. The conservatives were terrified that he was going to go too far. Everybody is gaming what's happening in Anthony Kennedy's head. Is it that simple? What what's your best guess? And we won't hold you to it. But what is your best <laughs> guess about what happened in there when it came time? As you said, you know, it's got to be done. So why not just do it? Well, I have to say that here's how I imagine this kind of went down. And that is last Friday or, or last week when all of the justices got together uh, to talk about the cases. And I'm sure this was the, the principal thing that they got together to, to discuss. You know, the first thing that happens is the chief justice introduces every case. And the only thing I can imagine going on in the back of his head was, please, 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 can we not hear these cases? Because the chief justice in particular is in a weird spot here. He knows what where the tides of the country and of history are going. Uh, at the same time, he's a conservative in his jurisprudence and I think would be disinclined naturally uh, to find this right in the Constitution. Uh, then you take a look at it from the perspective of the still more conservative justices, a Justice Scalia, a Justice Alito, a Justice Thomas. And they're probably relatively strategic about it. They are interested here in the end result and interpreting the Constitution as they think is right. And I thought their strategic decision would be to say, all right, we got to take him now because, you know, next year it is not going to be a stronger case for the conservatives. And the year after that, it's not going to be. The only thing that I can think of, and it takes four votes to grant cert, and there are three right there. The only thing that I can really think of is they had the medium to long-term view. The medium view is that there is a court of appeals that heard oral argument on the same question pretty recently, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Ohio. And the reports from that argument were that the government, the state, might win in defending its law. And the conservatives may have said, look, right now all the courts of appeals are recognizing this right. And having it come up in that posture to Justice Kennedy is going to make it tough for us to win. So maybe we ought to just wait a year or so. Uh, The second thing they may well have been doing is taking the even longer view and said, look, I just think we're going to lose this thing if we were to take the case right now. On the other hand, there are four justices of this court who are north of 76 years old. Uh, The 2016 election is not that far away. Maybe we'll just hang back and see if the court's composition changes, because if we take this issue now and lock it in, then we think same-sex marriage is going to get recognized as a constitutional right, and you're never going to be able to undo that. Yeah, I think that's possible. And I think it's certainly, you know, because it doesn't get better for them, gaming an election, gaming the court maybe makes some sense. Although I I just in my heart of hearts, I think that even uh, Justice, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, this opinion doesn't write for him. I think it's just, mm-hmm. you know, when you're writing something that you think your grandchildren are going to have to wear paper bags over their heads someday. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think it's a hard, hard one to write. And so, you know, the other theory going on out there is that it was the left wing of the court that wasn't completely sure this was going the right way. And I do think that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had said as 
recently as this summer, this is not something the court's going to duck. It's not going to be like Loving versus Virginia. We're going to have to deal with this square on. And then, uh, you know, here she is talking at the University of Minnesota Law School in September saying pretty much the opposite thing. Let's just listen to what she says. There is a case now pending before the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Now, if that court should disagree with the others, then there will be some urgency in the court taking the case. But when all of the courts of appeals are in agreement, there's no need for us to rush to to step in. Yeah, that's definitely the traditional view of when the court steps in, and that's when there's a disagreement between the courts of appeals. But this isn't the normal case. I mean, I just cannot imagine that the Supreme Court, even if all the lower courts were to go one way, maybe not all of them, but even if the great majority of lower courts were to go one way, the Supreme Court wouldn't say, it's our job to announce this. And, you know, Loving versus Virginia had to be decided by the Supreme Court because it was such a foundational thing. So did Brown versus the Board of Education. And it's true that the justices really couldn't hang on to the cases and wait for that next court of appeals decision to come down for the reason that they just don't do that sort of thing. And a whole bunch of couples would have been just stuck uh, in, you know, hibernation in their relationships. But the other thing is that on some level, you have to be willing to criticize the court on the question of how responsible it is to allow these couples to get married if you think that you may seriously then not recognize this right. Now, I sure hope that even if the court were, to everybody's surprise now, go the other way in a year or two, they wouldn't undo these marriages, for goodness sakes. But still, uh, there is a pervasive uncertainty in these relationships that's deeply unfortunate. Now, it's, it's better than it was two months ago and way better than two years ago and God knows way better than it was five years ago when nobody really in their right mind believed that this conservative Supreme Court would ever allow the right to same-sex marriage to be recognized. But still, it would be nice to have an answer. So I'm going to say a word and you're going to cringe, but let's talk about backlash. Do you um, <laughs> do you think that some of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's famous fears about how Roe was wrongly decided. The court went, in her words, too far, too fast, and it engendered this massive backlash across the country. And she's been pretty clear that she doesn't want to get out ahead of history. How much do you think that is playing into the thinking? Do you think that the court is just absolutely terrified? And I should add, polling shows that support for gay marriage has dropped, right, as a result of Monday's Mm. uh, shenanigans. So is Mm. there some reason to believe that the court is very, very smart to stay behind this because to get out way too far ahead of history and not let it kind of rise organically in the states is to really rally people against the cause? I don't know. I mean, that's not my read of the Windsor decision and its reaction, right? The court a couple of years ago had its strongest statement about gay rights uh, invalidating that provision of the Defense of Marriage Act, and it seemed to really jumpstart a lot of these decisions. Were it not for those decisions, I don't think we'd have uh, the level, near the level of support that we have now. And Justice Ginsburg does believe that quite strongly with respect to abortion. She has, you know, been making that point for decades. Um, and I, I don't think we have a parallel in which we can set, line up against the development of social acceptance of gay rights and same-sex marriage, which still has a distance to go for sure. But the country, and or at least a significant part of it, have moved faster on this than 
anything I've ever heard of, much less seen. And so knowing where the court stands in terms of the development of our culture on this question is super hard because I, there's just there's just no parallel. I would say that she and other folks who share her views would say, look, we can be better safe than sorry here. Right. I cannot imagine one of the more liberal justices wanting to grant cert in this case in any way, shape, or form unless Justice Kennedy said, by the way, I'm going to affirm and recognize the vote to same-sex marriage, and here I've written it down and signed it and put it in this Bible for you. Right. Um, but barring that, I mean, why would they Why would they do that? Everything's going their way. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, probably getting a little bit behind history is is not the worst thing for a court that yeah. is this fractious and this, you know, the great thing about the Supreme Court, I guess, this week is that everybody on both sides is happy. <laughs> you know, like, it wasn't a huge, big defeat. And I think that the supporters of same-sex marriage took it as a win. So oh, this for was sure. and well-gamed, well well-gamed. Right. And you can tell a little bit of that because not only did they deny review, but we didn't get any angry dissents from the denial of review. If the conservatives felt that the, you know, they should have had the cases taken, I think you would have seen somebody write that. Right, right. And if any of the conservative justices were drunk in a bar muttering, I'm sure we'd know about it by now. So I think this is just going to play out the way it plays out. Um, last question, Tommy, on this, and that is, what is the best argument in the briefs against same-sex marriage? A lot of what has fallen out uh, you know, it's bad for kids. Uh, it's nature's mm-hmm. way. Kids need a mommy. Mm. And a lot of that has, you know, the, the old responsible procreation, we need to save marriage for the straights because they keep mm-hmm. knocking each other up. You know, those mm-hmm. have all fallen out of the brief. So what is, is the, is the only thing left the state's rights argument? Is the only thing left uh, the sort of the, the analysis that says Windsor was a state's rights decision and states need to make this choice? I think that that's a big part of it. And it, you know, what Justice Scalia, I think, in the end will say is that this just is not in the Constitution. This is not the kind of invidious discrimination that the Equal Protection Clause is decided to uh, stop, that this is why we have a democracy. And uh, this is not a discriminatory judgment so much as it is a moral judgment. And our laws are filled with moral judgments. Um, And that's just a super thin line. I mean, when you hate someone because you think something about their nature as a person is immoral, it is very hard to distinguish that from just raw discrimination. Uh, it is very hard to distinguish what is, you know, what what was at the base of these laws from what was at the base of a lot of laws that were at the root of discrimination against all kinds of people, African Americans, other ethnic minorities, and women. Um, but that's, that's what will be said in defense of the laws. And we ought to recognize it's not crazy. Uh, Everybody took it as absolutely, uh, you know, completely true for the overwhelming majority, for 99% of the country's history. Uh, But it is going to turn out to be wrong. Well, thank you very much. And we are going to turn uh, joyfully now to the slightly less meta conversation of (laughs) how much beard is too much beard in prison. Uh, and then we are going to turn back to you to talk about what's coming up in the rest of the term. Fantastic. At oral argument this week in Holt versus Hobbs, a case involving the beard length of a Muslim prisoner incarcerated in Arkansas, Justice Samuel Alito had great fun with the hypothetical things you could hide in a beard question. Well, as far as searching a beard is concerned, why can't the prison just 
give the uh, inmate a comb. You could develop whatever kind of comb you want and say, comb your beard. And if there's anything in there, if there's a SIM card in there or a, a revolver or anything else you think <laughs> can be hidden in a half-inch beard, a tiny revolver, it'll fall out. Joining me to talk about the argument in Holt is one of the attorneys who argued the case at the Supreme Court this week, Professor Douglas Laycock from the University of Virginia School of Law, an expert in religious liberty who represented Mr. Holt, a Muslim prisoner who wants to be able, in accordance with his religion, to grow a beard in prison and was told by uh, the Department of Corrections in Arkansas that he could not. Uh, His beard had to be a quarter of an inch. First of all, welcome. It's a delight to have you here at Amicus. Happy to be here. And I wonder if you could talk for a minute about this case, uh, what issues it raised, and how you came to get involved with Mr. Holt. Well, actually, one clarification, he could not have a quarter-inch beard. That rule was only for people with a medical need. Religious belief didn't even get you a quarter-inch. He... I mean, he's obviously made some serious mistakes in his life, but he's an intelligent man, and he litigated this case by himself. Uh, Handwritten pleadings, they held a hearing, he testified, he cross-examined the warden, he scored some points on cross-exam, and he lost all the way up. He lost in the trial court, he lost in the court of appeals. Um, He filed a a handwritten petition to the Supreme Court and a request for the Supreme Court to enter a temporary injunction while they decided what to do with his petition, and he actually got that. And that was the first time anyone knew about this case. Um, And the religious liberty community obviously noticed when this order appeared on the order list, and someone went down and talked to him, and eventually he was referred to me, and, and I've represented him since that point. So explain briefly, this is a very, very strange, the Arkansas rule is quite different from 44 other jurisdictions that will allow you to grow facial hair. Uh, And yet he, as you said, lost in the district court, lost again in the court of appeals. Why did the U.S. Supreme Court take the case? I mean, was it just error correction? Did they just need to get it right? Or was there some large issue here that the court needed to hear? Well, I think there is a larger issue. So there's, there's a federal statute. Um, that specifically protects the religious liberty rights of prisoners. And Congress said, even in prison, a burden on a prisoner's religious practice has to be justified as the least restrictive means to serve a compelling interest. And, And the larger issue in this case really is whether that statute will be taken seriously. If they're not going to enforce it on these facts, he only wants a half inch beard. You can't, as he said, you can't hide anything in a half inch beard. If they won't enforce it here, it's hard to imagine a case where they will enforce it. And the lower courts refuse to enforce it here. The, in, in the Eighth Circuit, which includes Arkansas, they had devi- developed a rule that pretty much said we have to believe whatever the prison authorities say. One of the things that I thought was so interesting sitting through oral argument was you actually did get to hear – detail, granular detail about how prisons are run. And, you know, as somebody who often says, in my case, that the court seems kind of far, far away from the way the rest of us experience life, it was interesting to hear that there are concerns. There are concerns about SIM cards being slipped into beards. There are concern- There was a long colloquy uh, with the deputy attorney general from Arkansas who was saying that there's a real concern that people will shave their beards and alter their identities and then sneak into another barracks and hurt someone who hates them. But at least I thought it was interesting that the court was engaging deeply with what seemed to be legitimate penological interests. 
Well, I mean, they, they were a legitimate interest, but the question is how serious they are. So they made a big deal about the SIM card. That's the part of the cell phone that really makes it work. Um, the SIM, two things to note about that. For the SIM card, the trial judge measured it. It's 13 30 seconds of an inch by three-eighths, he said. That's a tenth of an inch shorter than the half-inch beard, and it's square, Right, so no one ever explained how you could possibly make that stay put in your beard, and no corner of it would show at any point, and that that is uh, really impossible to imagine. And the other thing is, they testified that in 2011 they confiscated a thousand cell phones in the prison system. Those all came in without beards, so obviously there are plenty of good hiding places. Um, and I don't think that number changes if you if you allow half-inch beards because all those other hiding places are much better than the half-inch beard would be. Now, one of the things I thought was most interesting, and I thought you dealt with it uh, admirably, but I think you were getting challenged for the reasonableness of your posture uh, throughout this oral argument. And so I want to play for you uh, Chief Justice John Roberts challenging you on making your own case too easy. I mean, one of the difficult uh, issues in a case like this is where to draw the line. And you just say, well, we want to draw the line at half inch because that lets us win. And the next day, someone's going to be here with one inch, and maybe it'll be you, and then, you know, two inches. It seems to me you can't avoid the legal difficulty just by saying all we want is half an inch. Well, most of the cases seek a full beard or full hair, and sooner or later you will have to decide one of those cases. Uh, But this case — he made a pro se decision to limit his request. The court ex- expressly limited the question presented. So this case is only about — Well, but we have to it. decide this case pursuant to a generally applicable legal principle. And that legal principle is one, it seems to me, that demands some sort of a limit. And if you're unwilling to articulate a, a limit uh, uh, to the principle itself, it becomes a little bit difficult to apply it, say, well, we don't know what the limit is uh, uh, because you're only asking a half inch. We'll apply it a — um, the- theoretical legal structure and, and say you fall within it? Well, I think, you know, the limit has to be determined on a record in a case that is seeking a, a longer beard. I think, you know, what the, the larger is- issue than just half an inch that this case presents is how do you administer the legislative history suggests deference to prison officials in the context of a compelling interest standard. So I think the question I want to ask you is you you pushed back on his saying, you know, I need you to tell me our two inch beard. Where where is this going to end? Is this going to end in ZZ top length beards? You know, are we going to Duck Dynasty beards? And you really refused to say the burden is on me to tell you how long beards are, at which point the state can intervene. Uh, Did you feel that that he was pressing you to to do something that you didn't feel you needed to do to prevail? Well, didn't didn't think I needed to or that I could. So, I mean, the other way to view the half inch, is, and, and I didn't pick a half inch, right? The prisoner picked a half inch, and then the court, when it granted review, explicitly limited the case to a half inch. Uh, so I'm just arguing the case was handed to me. But he said it makes it too easy, but it wasn't too easy for the Eighth Circuit, right? They wouldn't even protect half an inch. They essentially made the statute a nullity. Um, I wasn't going to tell him where to draw the line because um, it may be that you don't have to draw the line. You know, if, if 40 jurisdictions permit beards without a length limit, 
they must not be too dangerous. And I wasn't going to give away those cases for some other lawyer coming up next. You know, the court's got to look at the evidence on uh, full beards. And if full beards are okay, then they don't have to worry about drawing a line in inches. So, so the other place where there was a really interesting back and forth was between you and Justice Scalia, who felt that your client couldn't really be adhering to his religion if he was willing to settle for a half-inch beard. So let's listen to Justice Scalia talking to you about that. Well, Mr. Laycock, <clears throat> the problem, problem I have with, with your client's uh, claim of, of, of religious uh, requirement is the religious requirement is that he grow a full beard, isn't it? Now, l- let's assume I'm in a religion that uh, requires polygamy. Um, I mean, could, could I say to the prison, well, oh, you know, okay, uh, I won't have three wives, just let me have two wives. I mean, you're still violating your religion, it seems to me, if he allows his, his beard to be clipped to one, one, one inch, isn't he? Well, the, the religious teaching is a full beard. He testified uh, that religiously half an inch is better than nothing, and he explained that in terms of Hadith that, that he referenced. He's in a very difficult situation. I don't think he should be penalized for being reasonable here. He offered an extremely conservative compromise to the president. Well, religious beliefs aren't reasonable. I mean, <laughs> religious beliefs are categorical, you know. It's, uh, well, God tells you. It's not a matter of being reasonable. God be reasonable. Uh, he's <laughs> supposed to have a full beard. He's, he, he's supposed to have a full beard, but a partial beard is better than none, and that's not just in secular terms. That's also in religious terms, which he explained on the record. So I, th- I wondered if you could talk about, was that a sweaty moment for you where you felt like you were being asked to be unreasonable in order to defend a religious principle? No. I mean, that may be the way Justice Scalia experiences his religion. Uh, but, you know, millions of Americans may understand the religion to be categorical, but they practice it only partially, right? They know they're supposed to go to Mass every week, but they really go once a month or three times a year. Um, This prisoner was in a very difficult situation. You have hardly any rights in prison. You're totally regimented. They don't take you seriously. And when he went to court, he was facing a court who didn't take him all that seriously, and he didn't have a lawyer, and he didn't have any access to expert witnesses and so forth. He found a case, a case from California that uh, several years ago permitted half-inch beards, and he kind of tied himself to that. So his religious belief is, I ought to leave the beard entirely uncut. He also testified... Uh, in effect, you get partial credit. It's better to try than not to try at all. A half an inch beard is religiously better than nothing. And he explained that in terms of uh, underlying Islamic sources. And so, you know, I think his willingness to compromise shouldn't be held against him. This was entirely reasonable. And it's still a religious practice, uh, even if he's doing it only partially. Douglas Laycock teaches law at the University of Virginia Law School right here in Charlottesville, Virginia. He specializes in religious liberty cases. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Now we're going to turn back to our friend Tom Goldstein of SCOTUS blog and Supreme Court advocacy fame to game out the big, big cases coming up before the court this term. So Tom Goldstein, famous court watcher, 
Uh, I see a headline that says, quote, Tom Goldstein, next Supreme Court term will be most important, <laughs> more important than any in the last 50 years. Or the next. And, the next. and, and then I, I was seeing other people calling this the Seinfeld term because <laughs> nothing is happening. So not to put you on the spot, Tommy, but yes. why do you think this is the <laughs> most important and consequential? We'll all be dead by the time a more interesting uh, term comes along. So can you please defend that statement? Well, I think I might have said the next 12 months uh, <laughs> and <laughs> rather than the next Supreme Court term. I hope I did because that's what I meant. Because teed up are the mother of all big social constitutional issues and the fate of Obamacare. So in my defense, there's going to be a lot of ultra super cool stuff coming out of the Supreme Court. So we are, I think, inevitably not that far down the road going to get the same-sex marriage case that we've been talking about. Then we have these incredibly important cases coming out of Texas, both on the future of affirmative action in higher education and on abortion rights. And then there's this sleeper attack on Obamacare that is sitting in front of the justices in a cert petition and also in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington. And all of those have the potential to be blockbusters, or at least I hope they will. And the Fifth Circuit, the abortion cases are the admitting privilege. This is the big omnibus mm. Texas law that yes. made abortion really difficult. And yes. so part of it is the admitting privileges provision that says doctors uh, have to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Part of it is the medical abortion. And part of it is this actual clinic closures that are happening as a result of laws that require that clinics be retrofitted, right, for, for yes, all sorts of— Yes, with surgical care— uh, uh, capacities that they that they have the same facilities as surgical care facilities, and it's important to say that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals blessed all of those, including when uh, confronted with evidence that clinics across Texas were closing and people would have to drive hundreds of miles. Uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, "Yeah, that's okay." Yeah, they do have this very interesting rule that said you have to prove that a it would essentially become unavailable for a substantial proportion of the Texas population. And the fact that it's unavailable to in a reasonable fashion to 20 percent of the women in Texas is not sufficiently good enough for their constitutional rights, I suppose. But, you know, a, abortion is an area of the law that's in flux. And this is one of the fascinating things about Justice Kennedy, who is the intellectual jurisprudential leader of something as extremely what we would have thought of as progressive or liberal as the recognition of same-sex marriage simultaneously, he is the person, I think, who will play an extraordinarily important role in limiting the row right. Uh, and so it's a fascinating, we can't, it's very hard in those kinds of cases to cabin him as the classical, you know, conservative or liberal. And uh, this might be a good time to mention that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who uh, has given an interview to I think every human being uh, yeah, well, who covers now, the now she Not yet. She has my daughter's school. Oh, really? Is, really? Uh, is, is not until next week. So don't say she's already done it. Okay. So in case you're listening to Amicus, Justice Ginsburg, yes. Tom's <laughs> daughter's school is waiting uh, to talk to you. But um, <laughs> Justice Ginsburg has been pretty... I would say open in her criticism of Justice Kennedy and his uh, shrinking from what she thinks he committed to in Casey. Is that going to help her in the long run, criticizing him? I don't know. I mean, Justice Ginsburg is off the hook. Uh, she, <laughs> well, now she's like, totally not coming to your kid's school. <laughs> I meant that in the best possible way. The uh, Justice Ginsburg is really having her moment. Uh, in a wonderful way, and that is she has developed, I think, you know, in large part through social media, this incredible 
following of uh, particularly, I think, uh, a lot of young women who feel very proud and empowered of her role. She's developed a voice as the leader of the left on the Supreme Court as she's the most senior justice on the left uh, and is really over the past three or four years has felt less and less constrained in commenting about issues and cases before the court in interviews, less constrained than any other member of the court. And, you know, that could be right, that could be wrong, but she is not holding back. Now, they're all grown-ups. Uh, and uh, I don't think that Justice Kennedy is going to, like, in retribution or anything like that. I think that her comments are directed at the country, not at him. Right. And he is where he is on reproductive rights, and where he is yeah. is not where she wants him to be. I wonder if uh, you want to talk for a, a minute about the other cases coming up before the court. We've got some really interesting speech cases. The one I'm watching is uh, Alonis, the truth threats mm-hmm. case, and how threats morph into something different on the internet. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, that's a really fascinating case where a guy puts up on Facebook a lot of things that somebody would regard as, particularly the people they were directed at, were real threats. Now, uh, he had a very difficult breakup with his wife and at his job, and he said things, and there was an altercation with a female FBI agent, and he said some things online that, uh, if taken literally, were extremely threatening. On the other hand, he describes himself as uh, effectively kind of a nascent rapper uh, and uses a lot of violent imagery to express himself uh, in the same way that, say, an Eminem does, if somewhat less artfully. Uh, And finding the difference between those things is super hard. And the justices are having to confront the question, you know, what do you do if someone is out there saying these things that are extremely threatening, uh, but you don't have any actual proof uh, that they really intend to do something? They haven't taken an affirmative violent step forward. Uh, And it just presents this incredible clash between principles of free speech, that is, being able to express how it is that you're feeling, particularly if you throw into the mix a kind of a a, a genre of a form of art like rap. And how do you balance that against needing to protect the public? What kind of proof do you have to have that the person really intends to hurt them? So it's it's an awesome case. It's an awesome case. And I think just the technical question is whether it's the intent of the speaker or how the listener hears that threat that controls. There's a split between the, the circuit courts. And I think you're exactly right. I think this smokes out so many interesting questions about the difference between face-to-face conversation and the internet where things can be taken out of context. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this whole really interesting sub-question about rap music. There's an amazing amicus brief in this case by the rap supporters who say, you know, rappers always get treated as though they're thugs and hooligans, but this is, it's like WWF wrestling. It's just performance. Live with it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, boy, if you're the person who they're talking about and it's on Facebook and it's about you by your ex-husband, I think you're going to feel very unsettled and not like be humming along. And and there's a reason that it's interesting. I think this this intersects in interesting ways with a lot of the women who yeah. write about this case who say that women experience threats, oh, even artistic threats on the internet in ways that are unbelievably chilling of their own speech. So part of me worries that the Supreme Court that, you know, didn't know what a what a mm-hmm. um, pager was a couple years ago is mm-hmm. not the best situated to talk about uh, both rap music and Facebook, but they acquitted themselves okay last year on cell phones, so maybe they'll, <laughs> they'll catch up. Yeah, I mean, I think that they think the trolls are the animals that live under the bridge. They are not going to have a lot of experience with kind of internet hate. 
Tom Goldstein, it has been a joy, as always, talking to you and hearing your insights about the term. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the maiden voyage of the USS Amicus. Well, I was so lucky to get to be here on the very first one and look forward to listening to it for many years to come. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. And that's all for this inaugural episode of Slate's Amicus podcast. Let us know what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of on future episodes. You can always reach us at podcasts at slate.com. That's podcasts with an S at slate.com. Our producer is Tony Field. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thank you to Tom Goldstein of SCOTUS Blog and to Professor Douglas Laycock of the University of Virginia. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back with you later in October for the next edition of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.